Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today we are continuing with the book of Acts, and we are looking at the second half of Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost. And so last week we looked at the first half of Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit arrives, when there's about 120 followers of Jesus gathered together, and the Holy Spirit descends on them and gives them the ability to speak in languages that they didn't speak before. Now, this happened on the day of Pentecost, one of the Jewish festivals, when Jerusalem was filled with people who had come to be in Jerusalem for this festival. And so they hear this great sound, and they go to check out what's going on, and they see this group of people speaking their own languages. And so these faithful Jews from all over the Roman Empire have come to Jerusalem, and they start hearing their own home language being spoken by this group from Galilee, and they are amazed. And so Peter capitalizes on this moment, and he gets up, and he speaks to the crowd, and he says to them, no, 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 these people aren't drunk. What you have just witnessed is that the Holy Spirit has arrived. And Peter starts speaking to the crowd, and he goes back to one of their prophets. He goes back to their prophet Joel and tells them that this was promised, that this pouring out of the Spirit upon men and women alike is a sign that they have entered into the age of the Messiah, this time period when God's anointed one has come to earth, and it's a new era in God's plan for the world. And so what happens in this moment is that the crowd accepts Peter's claim that the age of the Messiah has become because of what they've witnessed. They've seen people speak their own language, people who couldn't possibly do that, and they recognize that Peter is right, that this is a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that this is something new happening. And so Peter He's quoting from the prophet Joel, and he picks this passage because it leads him to this verse. And this is the verse we left off on last week. Peter says this, he says, but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this would be a familiar passage to the people in the crowd. They know that this is true, and they're accepting that this is the age of the Messiah, but there might be a question in the back of their minds. And maybe this is a question that it doesn't appear in the text, but maybe it pops up for you as you're reading this, is you might wonder if the age of the Messiah has begun, then where is the Messiah? Where is this anointed one that God has sent into the world? Because at this time period, there were many different ideas about who the Messiah would be. Some people believe that the Messiah would be a leader of Israel, maybe a military leader like a king, or maybe would be a political leader like he would control the Sanhedrin, their ruling council. But somehow this leader would cause Israel to gain its independence, to push off their Roman oppressors and take over and establish their own independent nation again, like they were many, many centuries earlier. And then there was another common thought about the Messiah, that the Messiah would bring about a new era of devotion to the law, that the Messiah would be like a new great high priest that would reform their temple system and just bring about a new era of devotion to the law. But the problem with those perspectives is that Jesus didn't meet either of them. In fact, no one expected that the Messiah would be the way that Jesus was and what he did, because instead of being in Jerusalem and becoming a military leader or taking over the Sanhedrin or becoming a new high priest. Instead, Jesus was acted like a normal, common rabbi, a teacher of the law who had a group of disciples and a group of followers and traveled from place to place 
teaching about God and explaining their scriptures. Jesus was a traveling teacher, but he also did things that no rabbi could do. He performed miracles and signs and wonders that started to reveal and point out that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, no one expected that the Messiah would have to die to fulfill God's redemptive plan. So when Jesus was betrayed and crucified and executed by the religious leaders and the Roman governor, they assumed, well, he couldn't have been the Messiah. And here's where Peter continues. He says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know, as the crowd knows, as everyone in the area knows about Jesus because of his influence over the past three years. And Peter goes on and he says, but God knew what that would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. And Jesus is putting this squarely on both the Jews and the Gentiles of saying all of humanity is responsible for his death, this being nailed to the cross and Jesus being killed that they all have a part of it. But because they all have a part of it, they are all part of the redemption that came because of Jesus. Because Peter goes on, he says, but God released him, released Jesus from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death could not keep him in its grip. Peter is telling them that this was God's plan all along, that the Messiah would have to die because his resurrection would demonstrate God's power and victory over everything. And in fact, this would go back to another quote that Peter brings up. He goes back to the Psalms. He goes to Psalm 16, one of the Psalms of David, and he tells them this. And and I'm going to quote this from the Greek version of Psalm 1610, where it says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead. The word that Peter would use in that moment was Hades. You will not leave my soul among Hades, or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. And this was a common psalm of David that many people knew but scratched their head, didn't really know what it meant. And Peter explains it. He says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us, still in Jerusalem. But he, referring to David, was a prophet and he knew that God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne something that Jesus was. Jesus' family line through Mary goes back to David. and says this, David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. So what Peter has done in this moment is he has started with their bewilderment at this great sound and hearing their own language. And now he has revealed to them that the Messiah has already been here on earth, that Jesus was the Messiah because he rose from the grave. He fulfilled this promise, this prophecy that was given by David nearly a thousand years earlier. And so what Peter has done in this moment is actually a little fascinating. And if we kind of step back and we just look at his argument as a whole, Peter has started revealing about Jesus by going to what they have experienced. He started by talking about them witnessing the arrival of the Holy Spirit, hearing their own languages being spoken. He goes to what they have personally experienced themselves right in this moment. And he tells the crowd that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is here, that this age of the Messiah has come. And then he goes to the witnesses, 
then he goes to, you know that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus fulfilled these things and confirms what was revealed by Jesus' ministry in his time on earth. Because even though Jesus' ministry was only three years, he was so well known. In fact, it's plausible to expect that some of the pilgrims that have come into Jerusalem are people who would have traveled to see Jesus. Some of the people in the crowd likely would have seen Jesus firsthand or maybe a relative or someone from their hometown traveled to see Jesus to find out what's all this fuss about? Who is this rabbi from Nazareth who speaks this way? And then after their first-hand experience of seeing the Holy Spirit and their second-hand experience of hearing about Jesus, then Peter goes to their own scriptures. And the quotations from Joel and the Psalms are not the primary evidence of the Messiah. He doesn't start with scripture. He finishes with scripture. They serve as confirmation of what God has revealed through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He actually puts the Spirit's revelation and Jesus' own revelation first in his argument before going to their scriptures. I just find that's kind of fascinating because that's how he says this is what God is doing that is new. And it is backed up by scripture, but it relies on so much more than just their scriptures. It relies on the Holy Spirit and their own encounter with Jesus. And so Peter is in fact talking about their religion and faith in a way that is completely new. This is an unheard of approach to talking about Jesus. And so Peter goes on and he says, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. He's confirming that, you know, part of this group of 120, many or most or even all of them have witnessed Jesus's resurrection firsthand, have been there at the times when Jesus appeared and spoke to the apostles and spoke to crowds after his death and resurrection. It says this, now he has ex- is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. So in this passage, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. And this is one of those passages that points to our doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, but he is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together in perfect unity. And all three are active in this moment, to pour the Spirit out on people today. And then we're going to skip ahead past the the second reference where where Peter pulls up Psalm 110 to confirm this again uh, based on something that David said. And Peter ends his message with this. This is his thesis, his big conclusion, his defining moment of what he's speaking to the crowd. He says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Now, if you rewind a moment, we ended last week with this quote from the prophet Joel that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now Peter is telling the crowd that the name of the Lord, the name of the Messiah is Jesus. That Jesus is the one to put our trust into, to receive the salvation, to receive forgiveness, to receive the grace and to receive the Holy Spirit that God promises to us. In fact, this is the first moment of evangelism when the gospel is being shared with a large group of people on the first day of the church. And so Peter is inviting the crowd with this statement to put their trust in Jesus, 
to recognize that Jesus and the Spirit and God are one, that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God that we have. And so the people of the crowd respond, and Luke writes it this way. He says that their hearts were pierced by Peter's words, and they called out to him asking, what should we do? What's the, what's the step to take after our hearts have been changed by this message? And so Peter gives them this instruction. He says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. And the word repent just means to change course, to change direction, to turn towards God, to put your trust in God. He says, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to make a declaration of your faith. And in that, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Peter is not saying that you are only forgiven if you are baptized, but baptism is a response to being forgiven. That baptism, this public declaration of putting your trust in Jesus is in response to recognizing who God is and the forgiveness we have received. He says, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then you will receive the Spirit in your life the way that Jesus spoke about it earlier when he promised the Holy Spirit, saying that the Holy Spirit will be with you and then within you. Peter is repeating that the Holy Spirit is a gift given to all followers of Jesus. And then he goes on, he expands this further. He says, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. He gives them steps to take. But in this passage, that last line sometimes makes us scratch our heads. We say, wait, all who have been called, well, who's called and who isn't? Is that what that means? Does that mean there are some who are not called by God? And there's something that Peter hasn't realized yet. And in a couple chapters, Peter is going to discover his mistake, and Peter is going to repent of the way he has been teaching and the way he has been approaching this as God reveals more to Peter through the Holy Spirit. Because in this moment, when Peter says, all of Israel must respond, and he says, all who have been called by the Lord our God, Peter means only the descendants of Abraham. That's as far as his view can see. And later on, God's going to correct that. And make Peter realize that when it says, all who have been called, God means everyone. That God's whole plan of restoration and redemption that is fulfilled in Christ is for everyone. And that goes all the way back to a passage that if you've been around for a while, you've heard me quote it many times because it is the foundation of how God created his relationship with us. In Genesis 12, verse 3. God promises to Abram that one day all the nations, all the families on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And that family line from Abraham goes down through David and then goes down to Jesus. God himself who steps into the world, into the covenant that he made so that he can create a new covenant with humanity. And so, when Peter preaches in this moment, He doesn't get it quite right. But later on, we're going to see Peter correct that and recognize that the mission of the church is so much more than just Abraham's descendants. And so from this point on in the rest of Acts 2, Luke steps into his narrator voice and he kind of gives a summary of the rest of this day and a picture of the early church. And Luke goes on and he, he tells us this. He says, then Peter continued preaching for a long time strongly urging his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that, that phrase, crooked generation, to 
any faithful Jew would recognize right away, that is a phrase used by many of the prophets to refer to when the temple system, when the priests of Israel became corrupt, when they were leading people astray under the guidance of the king or even just of their own misguided understanding. So Peter is actually telling his listeners, don't listen to the religious leaders of the day. You need to listen to Christ. You need to listen to Jesus. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit. You need to listen to the apostles and listen to what starts. And then Luke gives us this summary. He says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. And so picture this. In the morning, there was 120 followers of Jesus gathered together, devoting themselves to prayer, wondering when this gift of the Holy Spirit was going to arrive. And by the end of the day, they are now a community numbering 3,120. Now, many of these 3,000 people would have been people who traveled into Jerusalem for the festival. And so they wouldn't have stayed put in Jerusalem. They would have gone back to their hometowns, telling people about what they experienced, what they saw, and telling people more that, that Jesus, who was crucified and killed just a few weeks earlier, really rose from the grave and really was the Messiah. And then Luke goes on, and in this last five verses of Acts 2, he gives us a picture of how the early church lived out their faith in Jesus. And I'm just going to read through this and give a few comments before we wrap up. He says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And so the believers, these were the marks of this new community that they gathered together for these purposes. And it says, a deep sense of awe came over them and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Doesn't say what those were, but just that they happened. And then all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And we might look at that and think, oh, so they, they, they you know, lived in a commune together. You know, they had shared ownership of property, but that's taking the Greek a little bit too far. Because Luke is saying that they continually sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those who had a need. And in fact, this gives a radical picture of a community where people looked at their own wealth and their own resources, their own property, and when they saw someone in need, they said, well, I can use what I have to help them. And so this was a culture of generosity, of radical generosity, unlike anything that the world had seen at this point in a very segregated, very class-based, Roman-dominated society. The early church lived this radical generosity of caring for those in need. And Luke goes on, he says, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The way the early church was living was a testament to who Christ was. And people were seeing this group and saying, I want to be part of that. I want what they have. Now, something unique about this where it says they worship together at the temple each day. In fact, at this point in Acts, the believers still gathered in the temple of Jerusalem and they still followed the law of Moses. In fact, the early church at this point is really contained as a group within Judaism. All the people who are putting their trust in Jesus were Jewish people first. And so it's not going to be for a while until we start seeing the early church and the temple part ways and go in different directions 
as the church starts to expand into Gentile Christians and as people who aren't Jewish start committing their lives to Christ, we start seeing that, that those paths diverge. And that'll come up later in Acts, and, and we're going to talk a bunch about it then. But when we look at these first few verses, or these last few verses of Acts 2 that describe the early church, it's easy for us to look at Acts 2, 42 to 47, with rose-colored glasses and imagine that everything was perfect when the church was in its earliest stages. And that may have been true for this exact moment in time, right here as a snapshot of Acts 2. But we might forget sometimes that the rest of the New Testament letters, the letters written by Paul and the other apostles, were primarily written to respond to conflicts and problems and issues, to theological issues and sin issues and and massive conflicts and false teaching and false gospels. They were responding to all these problems and issues that happened any time you have a group of people gathered. And so we can look at this early church picture and say, oh, wouldn't it be great to go back to that? But the truth is, the church has always been wrestling through what Luke describes in this passage, because Luke describes a community, an early church that is exactly what Jesus envisioned, a community where love of God and love of your neighbor was lived out daily. Because you might remember that on the last evening that Jesus had with his disciples, he said, I give you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so in this snapshot of Luke 2, 42 to 47, we see a community of faith that is living this out. And that is something that every church, not just ours, but every church in the world is seeking to live out. How do we love God and love our neighbor? How are we doing that well? What does that look like for this time and this era and this location? That is the work that every church is doing, a question that I ask continually as myself and the board are working through direction for the church. We're always looking at, so what does it mean to live out what God has called us to do faithfully in this moment, in this season? And this year, for the past 10 months, the pandemic brought a whole new layer of challenge to that, of how do we live this out? And there's a new challenge on the horizon of when we're able to start having maybe what we'll call the era of hybrid church, where we have some people in our church are going to be able to gather here in person when the restrictions lift, but some people are still going to be meeting online. And what does it mean to kind of be a community where right now we're all online? But what's that going to mean when we are a community that is kind of split between who's able to be here in person on a Sunday and who's still choosing to watch from home? And then also, you know, we've had people who have found our church and are watching from further away who aren't going to drive into Brandon to be here for church on Sunday. And so online is their community and is their expression of being part of this. And so we have still more challenges and things to figure out together of how are we going to do this? How do we lead people to love God and love our neighbors to demonstrate to the world that we are followers of Jesus? That the path of Jesus is not what they may have seen in the media and seen in the headlines, but that the path of Jesus is this path of love and devotion. Those are big questions to wrestle through. And so sometimes we just have to narrow it down. Sometimes we have to just narrow it down to a moment. And uh, Andy Stanley 
puts it this way. He says, what does love require of me? Because right away that just brings it down to me. What does love require of me in this moment, in this next decision I'm making, in who I'm talking with and who I encounter and how I interact with my coworkers, with my family? What does love require in that moment? Because when we start asking that question on the small scale, and when a group of people do that together, it actually answers the question on the large scale. And so as we look at this passage, as we look at this early church wrestling through how are we going to follow Jesus, and already in the next chapter, where we're going to go next week, we start seeing the problems that the early church runs up against. And so for this moment in time, for 2021, for end of January, moving into February, how are we going to reveal love to those around us? How are we going to capture that little spirit, that model of the first church, the values that they held dear? And how are we going to bring those into 2021, into our online church world, and live those out? And uh, if that's something you want to have a conversation about, I'd encourage you to fill out the connect card in the description or send me an email, hello at mygrandvalley.ca, and I'd love to chat with you about that. But folks, thank you so much for being here with me and with all of us together this Sunday. And I hope you have a great day and I hope to see you online next Sunday. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening.